there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 89, Red Riposte. By the fall of 1918, the state of the Civil War in Russia was looking kind of grim for Lenin and the Bolsheviks. Various factions of whites had been able to coalesce in the south along the Volga River, and if you recall the Japanese episodes, the Czech Legion successfully delivered the major cities of Siberia into the lap of the whites there which I'll be getting to events in Siberia and Central Asia in a future episode, but today we're going to keep the focus on European Russia. Anyway, the Reds had been caught flat-footed at virtually every turn against an opposition that itself wasn't coordinating very well. While the Red Army was still being assembled and shifted away from focusing on a potential German attack, the success of the Whites in, in this early phase was beginning to peak. General Denikin had marched the volunteer army towards the Caucasus Mountains, which was the wrong direction to win a civil war. The Kamuch government was unpopular and able to marshal popular support, and the Don Cossacks were stuck on their own doing the sensible thing and marching on Tsaritsyn on the Volga in order to link up with the Kamuch. Everybody was kind of doing their own thing, just as the Red Army was finally getting it together. And the first order of business was to stop the Kamuch advance on the North Volga. That advance had already taken Kazan and penetrated deep into the Russian core that was the Bolshevik base. Despite their successes, the Kamuch were not in a good position to resist a counterattack. Their best military strength up to that point had been the Czech soldiers, but they were unwilling to advance further and were suffering from desertions and low morale. Those strangers in a distant land knew their hosts would gladly try and use them to conquer Russia, and they also knew that was a task beyond their capabilities. The Kamuch's own efforts to raise their so-called People's Army had proven to be an embarrassment. As I covered last week, at their peak, their territorial base was populated by a solid 14 million people. From that, they received first 10,000 volunteers to fight on their behalf, which was the most dependable native force they had, and they also conscripted 30,000 additional fighters of dubious fighting spirit. It was a paltry amount, and it stemmed from the government's alienation of both workers and peasants. The workers didn't want to return to the days of capitalist dominance, and the peasants were furious that sizable landholdings had been returned to the gentry. The masses simply didn't want to fight for them. The Red Army didn't have this manpower problem, and thanks to the fact that they were sitting on the old army depots, they had armaments sufficient to equip much larger forces than the Kamuch could dream of. It turned out that while in Tsarist times there were insufficient guns for over 9 million men, there were more than enough for 500,000. For their part, the Kamuch couldn't commit the full force of their already small army due to a lack of weapons. Tens of thousands of red troops were shifted east, and by the end of August, the Kamuch's advance had been halted. Around Kazan, the local commander of the Kamuch's people army was at one Colonel Kappel, and on August 28th, he made one last desperate attack to at least secure the Volga as a barrier and maybe even score a bigger prize. You see, 20 miles west of Kazan was the massive Romanov Bridge, and sitting parked just on the right side of the bridge was Trotsky's armored train. The war commissar was many things, and a man of action was one of them. Wherever the situation appeared to be getting critical, Trotsky would swoop in in his train and personally take control of the situation, and his unshakable faith in both the revolution and himself typically meant that the tide turned in the Reds' favor. Plus, the armored train wasn't anything to be sneered at. The armor made it impervious to small arms, and it carried a garrison of machine gunners and sharpshooters. It also carried a full telegraph station, a library for Trotsky and his staff, a printing house for dispersing the latest propaganda pieces, as well as the train's very own newspaper, radio broadcast equipment, and train cars carrying automobiles. It had everything, 
and it was sitting right there in the thick of it. If Kappel and the People's Army could take the thing, it would be a huge coup. But that was the catch, though, actually taking the damn thing. On August 28, 1918, the Kamuch troops made their move and caught the Reds off guard, and were able to come up on Trotsky's train and isolate it. Trotsky and his personal guard, though, with their backs to the wall as they had nowhere to go, opened up on their attackers. In a firefight that lasted the whole day, the attackers were eventually beaten back, lacking the firepower to actually breach the train. Koppel had only had 2,000 men at his disposal, and they had exhausted themselves on a 15-mile march to actually reach the crossing and the train. The tired men must have been demoralized when they realized that they had to storm a metal train riddled with machine guns and snipers. They did their best, but due to running low on ammo and the appearance of red reinforcements, they had to beat a hasty retreat. The situation got worse for the People's Army, as the Reds had managed to transfer four naval destroyers via canals onto the Volga River and sail them to Kazan. The ships shelled the Kamuch soldiers' positions, and Red troops, spearheaded by the elite Latvian riflemen, moved to encircle the city. On September 10th, the Kamuch and Czech troops saw no way to win and slipped south along the Volga. Colonel Vatsedis, who had led the counterattack, got his revenge for his original loss of the city and was appointed commander-in-chief of the Red Army for his victory. Two days later, another force of Red troops took Simbursk, modern-day Ulyanovsk. At this point, the Czechs ditched out and the People's Army fell apart, and October 7th, the Kamuch capital of Samara fell and the government was disbanded with barely a whimper. The remnants of the People's Army and the Kamuch would drift east and hang out between Ufa and Chelyabinsk in the Ural Mountains. They would fall under the protection of the Siberian Whites and be absorbed by the factions out there, which I'll cover next week. The leader of the Western Czech forces, despondent at the failures of his troops, shot himself. This did have the effect of shaming many of the Czechs into later fighting harder, but they would do that from positions further to the east as they too withdrew behind the Urals. Not everything went quite the Bolshevik way, though, and important railway bridges at Simbursk and Sizran, just south of Samara, were destroyed which meant mass movement east of the Volga was going to be hampered for the time being and would affect their logistics as they advanced towards the Urals. Turning away from the east, in both the extreme north and south ends of Russia, there appeared new pressures as well. The northern parts of Russia would appear as an unlikely battlefield. Aside from some notable ports like Archangel and Murmansk on the White and Barents Seas, respectively, there wasn't a whole lot out there. And those ports were isolated ones, connected only by limited railways with the rest of the country and separated by vast tracts of frozen forests and rough terrain. But white commanders did wind up in the region, and they understood that the Entente leadership, especially the British, were not averse to a harebrained scheme. And it wasn't just the poor choice of battlefield that would make Western intervention into northern Russia be described as harebrained. These expeditions, which would be followed by later ones in Siberia and also smaller ones in the Black and Caspian Sea areas, would send a stark message to the Bolshevik leaders that the imperial great powers of the world were perfectly willing to deploy troops to their country in support of their enemies if it suited them. While the expeditions were usually not terribly well thought out and suffered from ever-evolving objectives that would make them only short-term threats, the impression they made lasted long after they left. The fear of outside attack was a cornerstone of Soviet paranoia, and it didn't originate during World War II or the 30s. It started almost from word go in 1918. From the perspective of the Entente, they wanted resistance to Germany to continue, and the whites in the north were willing to accommodate that request at the price of tangible assistance being sent their way. For the Entente, their mindset was the same as I described during the Japanese episodes on the Siberian expedition. 
They were worried that Lenin would formally ally with Germany while the final battles of World War I raged and wanted to keep as much of Russia out of German hands as they could. Plus, just like Vladivostok, Archangel and Murmansk housed considerable weapons depots stocked by the West that the Entente wanted to recover. The actual start of Entente intervention in the region, though, was actually welcomed by the local Bolsheviks. This might sound weird, but there's some shifting interests in play here that lend some sense to the situation. The Entente were mistrustful of the Reds as potential German agents and preferred the Whites, but events over in Finland convinced them to temporarily work with the Bolsheviks. What happened was that after the Finnish Civil War in 1918, the white faction in that country suppressed their far-left compatriots with German assistance. The resulting pro-German government then made noises about sending a joint expedition to take Bermansk, uh, this being before the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was signed and there still technically being a war on. The Bolsheviks directed the Murmansk Soviet to cooperate with the Entente landing on March 2, 1918, and a tiny force of less than 200 British troops arrived in May. They joined up with the local Red Guards, and together they moved west to check the small bands of Finnish troops that had entered Russia. It was all really insignificant stuff, uh, skirmishes in the forests and villages, and mostly notable because it's kind of funny thinking about British troops fighting alongside the Reds. It became less amusing, though, after the Finnish threat to Murmansk receded. With the Finns leaving and the Germans kept at arm's length thanks to the peace treaty, the Entente presence became less desirable. On June 30th, the Bolsheviks ordered the Murmansk Soviet to show the British the door and have them leave. The local Soviet, though, had grown to enjoy the protection of the British, whose contingent had grown to 600 men by then, and said no. On July 6th, the Soviet took the extra step of making a formal agreement with the Entente, asking them to aid in the defense of the region against the pro-German camp. Those actions made much more sense when you take into account that the Murmansk Soviet was dominated by the right SRs, and they were very unhappy about the Brest-Litovsk Treaty at the time. Over the summer, a whole slew of Entente troops started arriving in Murmansk, raising the foreign troop count to 6,000, and consisting of British, French, Americans, Italians, Canadians, and even Serbians, for crying out loud. They all found themselves deployed north of the Arctic Circle. The Entente troops would extend their control along the railway leading southwards a solid 300 miles, with any settlements along the way falling under the nominal control of the Murmansk government, but effectively being under Entente control. It might have been selling out to foreign occupation, but the collaborators did at least secure aid from the West, which, given the rest of the country starved through the Civil War, mm, that wasn't the worst move in the world. The Bolsheviks, facing disaster almost everywhere else, were in no position to repel even this smaller force. But despite their advance into Russia, the Entente didn't plan to engage the Bolsheviks man-to-man either. Most of the real action came against the Finns. The advance on Murmansk had been repelled, but that wasn't the only area of Finnish interest. Remember back in episode 37 I mentioned that Finnish nationalists dreamed of incorporating the ethnic Finns living in the region of Karelia, that strip of land between central Finland and the White Sea. White Finnish forces were active in the area trying to detach it from Russia, and the Entente, unwilling to let it slip to what was effectively a German client, stepped in to counter them. The Finns were hounded through the swampy forests of Karelia and cornered on September 11, 1918, with their forces in the region being crushed by the professional and well-equipped foreign troops. The Finns were done in the area, but by the time the Entente had finished fighting them, they had trekked even further south, reaching Lake Onega, a solid 500 miles south of Murmansk. 
And that wasn't the only expedition in North Russia either. The separate intervention into Archangel involved quite a bit less intrigue, though. White forces were already congregating there under the noses of the local Soviet, coordinating with the Entente during June and July 1918 to enter the city. American troops led the way this time around and entered Archangel on July 25th. Serbian and white Russian troops soon followed, and on August 2nd, a coordinated desertion of local red troops over to the white side took place, solidifying Entente control of the area. Unlike Murmansk, this was a straightforward anti-Bolshevik operation. By September 5th, the American contingent had been reinforced to a solid 5,500 men. But whatever local ambitions the Entente might have had were hampered by petty conflicts among the whites. The government set up an archangel was dominated by moderate socialists, which the Tsarist contingent of the whites took exception to. On September 5th, the same day the American reinforcements arrived, the leader of the Archangel government and two other officials were kidnapped by monarchists. This immediately provoked the people of the city, who absolutely did not want to be governed by Tsarists. The city shut down as the people refused to go to work, and the Entente made a tone-deaf response by appealing to the local Russian leaders to establish a government that was less socialist in its character. This just angered people still more, and many officials opted to simply resign from the city's government. As it turned out, they would not be replaced, and the Archangel area fell under military control, which just added to the burdens of the majority American force, as both the average soldiers and leadership both didn't want to be there. There wasn't a clearly defined mission in the area beyond stopping Bolshevik cooperation with the Germans, which by autumn 1918 obviously wasn't happening, and the whites were proving to be totally useless. As the white leadership plotted against each other, local Russian units started falling apart due to sheer neglect. Russian troops would try to sign up with Entente units, if only to make sure they got consistently fed. It got so bad that overall command of the Russian forces fell to the Americans, although their fighting capabilities never amounted to much due to low morale. And while the Entente had managed to advance at a radius of 200 miles around Archangel, winter was setting in and Bolshevik resistance began to stiffen. While by November 1918, the Entente force had grown to 18,000, in a similar composition to the Murmansk operation, it wasn't enough to cover such a vast area, and without competent Russian support, they were forced into a stalemate. With winter setting in, operations in the north of Russia began to slow down, so I'll be turning my attention to the south now. I already discussed the fortunes of war in southern Russia up to mid-1918, whereas it concerned the Volunteer Army and the Don Cossacks but there was a lot going on elsewhere in that quadrant of the former Russian Empire. After Brest-Litovsk in March 1918, the Germans and Austrians swarmed into Ukraine, reinstalling the Ukrainian Rada into a position of authority on the condition that it deliver precious food shipments. In fact, pretty much every bit of help the Germans provided their clients in southern Russia depended on them delivering food, whether they were Ukrainians, Georgians, Cossacks, or what have you. By early April, the Germans had reached Kharkov and Donetsk in the east and cleared the Crimea of Russian troops. After that, though, came the time to pay the piper, and the Rada was in no position to requisition anything, much less the precious grain coveted by both the central powers and the local population. The Rada, you see, was an installed government, and from the start could barely administer anything. When the Ukrainian nationalists had originally rose to power in 1917, they sought to commandeer the existing Russian bureaucracy and direct it to answer to them. By early 1918, that state apparatus was mostly gone, which meant that when the Rada gave orders, there wasn't really anybody to carry them out. The Germans picked up on this immediately and decided that a client government that couldn't deliver food wasn't worth dealing with. 
On April 29, 1918, the local German commanders engineered a coup in Kiev. Field Marshal von Eichhorn and General Groner, whom you might remember as Ludendorff's eventual replacement at the end of the war, and the guy who secured the German military's alliance with the SPD, were the main plotters. They assembled Russian officers who would prove to be more conservative than the Rada, and therefore also more willing to instill military discipline on the populace. Which would hopefully mean the grain would then flow. And when I say Russian officers, I don't mean ethnic Ukrainians in the Russian army either. I mean they were Russian officers who were now leading a theoretically independent Ukraine on behalf of the Germans. To compensate for their lack of a Ukrainian background, these guys would cosplay as Ukrainians from the 1600s, hearkening back to the days of living in the saddle on the open steppe. They'd invent ranks and wear uniforms from the old days, which did not endear them to the populace who saw through that immediately. Even less endearing was that the new regime made good on its promises to the central powers to start collecting grain, exporting one to one and a half million tons of food. This in turn provoked revolts and the new government never became anything more than a tool of the Germans. Which meant that when the Germans and Austrians began pulling out in November 1918, their clients went with them. A five-man directory was established in Kiev in December and presided over a shaky new network of military units and local authorities that had all secured their own patches of turf over Ukraine. By the start of 1919, Ukraine was terribly unstable, and the nationalists interested in its independence were united mostly by the fear of coming under Bolshevik or Polish dominance. Moving on further, across the Black Sea was the Transcaucasian Commissariat, consisting of a fusion of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. I talked about them briefly in episode 85, and by early 1918, they were still hanging in there. They had concluded a separate armistice with the Turkish Empire on December 5, 1917, and on April 9, 1918, they declared themselves independent, taking the name Transcaucasian Democratic Republic. It was moderately socialist in character and understandably federated between its three wildly different component parts. They faced a big problem, though, in that the Russian army facing the Turks had fallen apart and the Brest-Litovsk Treaty had voided the armistice with that empire. The Ottomans, for their part, had felt extremely put out by not being included in the treaty negotiations and not getting any significant territorial acquisitions. So they decided to march into Transcaucasia and take what they wanted. The big prize in the area was Baku and its giant oil fields, and the Turks set out for that city in May 1918. They didn't have the strength to properly conquer the area that they crossed, the Ottoman Empire was itself starving and falling apart just like their allies, but they did successfully break apart the Transcaucasian government. The three ethnic groups split, with the Georgians receiving German support in exchange for food, and the Armenians and Azerbaijanis turning against each other in communal conflicts that would repeat themselves after the fall of the Soviet Union. Many Azerbaijanis threw in with the Turks, seeing at least a semblance of common culture as both groups were Muslim and Turkic in origin, something the Ottoman leaders were eager to encourage. The Ottomans also started proclaiming their invasion to be on behalf of all Muslims in the region, calling their invasion force the Army of Islam. This meant that while the army grew to almost 20,000 men, only a quarter of them were from the Turkish Empire. Meanwhile, the city of Baku was still dominated by its Soviet, a Soviet which had not completely fallen to Bolshevik control. For what was effectively a town parliament, it was incredibly active. Leadership of the body changed hands between political factions like the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, or even ethnic ones like local Armenians or Georgians. 
The internal chaos did not serve them well given conditions outside the city where they were virtually alone and cut off from support. Local Red Guards managed to hold off the advance parties of the Turks through June and most of July, but they couldn't hold on forever. Panic started gripping the city, and tens of thousands of Azerbaijanis were massacred, as it was feared they'd form a fifth column that would turn the city over to the invaders. The moderate socialists on July 25th managed to get voted through the Soviet request for British aid, and a small detachment of soldiers from the UK moved in via Persia. These troops, known as Dunster Force, after its commander, Lionel Dunsterville, were a group of around 300 troops from all over the British Empire, which specialized in training and organizing local fighters to act on the Empire's behalf. While they attempted to stiffen Baku's defenses, and it did take the Turks from August to September to actually take the city, Baku did eventually fall. Which, of course, meant the Azerbaijanis got to conduct their own counter-ethnic cleansing, which claimed the lives of tens of thousands of Armenians. The Ottomans would not get to savor their win, as just two months later their empire would fall and its troops returned home. With the Turkish and Russian empires fallen and the British too distant to be of any help or hindrance, the three major Caucasian peoples would set up their own fragile, independent states. This was all roughly concurrent with Danikin's advance to the northern foothills of the Caucasus Mountains that I covered in episode 87, but the mountains meant that for the time being all these events were happening in their own little world, removed from both the Reds and the Whites. And while Danikin was setting up his own little personal territorial base for the volunteer army, his counterpart in the Don Cossacks, Hetman Krasnov, took a different direction in his fight against the Bolsheviks. The city of Tsaritsyn, modern-day Volgograd, one-time Stalingrad, is the most important city in the southern Volga region. It acts as a kind of gateway northward or eastward for anyone coming from Ukraine and vice versa heading in the opposite direction. Its status as a transit hub was even more important as it was also smack dab in the middle of a vital grain-growing region. And given the famine conditions in the northern Russian cities, the Bolsheviks had to keep the city in order to keep what food they could flowing north. Krasnov naturally wanted to deny them that and use it as a bridge to linking up with the Siberian whites. Lenin recognized the danger, and on May 27, 1918, concurrent to the Turkish advances in the Caucasus and the Entente landings in the Arctic ports, Andrei Snazarev was appointed commander of the entire North Caucasus region and headquartered in Tsaritsyn. His command was geographically expansive, but existed mostly on paper. The reforms and patient buildup of the Red Army in the north had not extended that far south yet, and his formations were mostly local Red Guards and bands that had recently been driven out of Ukraine by the Central Powers. His first priority was to actually build an army before engaging in any battles. Another wrinkle was that 10 days after he arrived in Tsaritsyn, Lenin's own Mr. Fixit also showed up, this being Joseph Stalin. I've mentioned before that I'm trying to avoid Stalin while I can, because I assure you there are a whole slew of episodes in the pipe about him already. But here he was going to make one of his big appearances during the Civil War. Stalin, from the start, didn't like Snazarev. The commander had been an ex-Tsarist officer, and Stalin was a core member of the opposition to Trotsky's policy of rehabilitating them. Stalin was, strictly speaking, there only to ensure grain shipments northwards were increased, which was a task Stalin certainly fulfilled with gusto. In the process of streamlining grain collection, he also took over the local Cheka outfit, which had themselves taken over a local town manor and converted it into their barracks, and also a dungeon for the suspected counter-revolutionaries. Due to Stalin's proximity to Lenin, he was a natural magnet for ambitious Bolsheviks without too many scruples. 
By July 1918, Snazarev had assembled a small army of 20,000 to meet the advancing Cossacks. But while he was focused on protecting the approaches to Tsaritsyn, Stalin was complaining directly to Lenin about him. He told the boss that he was doing great getting all the grain together, but to get more, he needed the means to cut through military interference. Remember, last week I discussed that battleground areas would fall under army administration. To get around this limitation to his authority, Stalin requested military powers. Lenin opted to avoid saying no by simply not responding. On July 10th, Stalin cabled Moscow again, this time saying he'd issue commands regardless of authority to local officers, and if any of them had a problem, they'd be dismissed. Basically, Stalin said he was going to assume local command, order or no order, from Moscow. Trotsky, at the time scrambling to deal with the Kamuch government and the Czechs on the North Volga, responded that he could assume whatever local powers over the army he wanted to, so long as the food kept coming in. He basically had given the, yeah, sure, whatever man response. Stalin was overjoyed and immediately arrested Snazarev and set up a three-person council to govern the area, a group that included himself and therefore might as well have just been himself. Trotsky would send a subordinate to find out what happened to Snazarev and did end up freeing him and taking him back north. Hundreds of other ex-officers were not so fortunate as they were targeted and arrested by Stalin. To command the military forces in the North Caucasus, Stalin tapped a man named Clement Voroshilov. Voroshilov is going to be weird in that he's not going to be purged and in fact is going to be with us for this entire narrative. He was an old Bolshevik and had taken control of the Soviet in the city of Lugansk in 1917, and in 1918, he joined with local Red Guards in partisan warfare against the Germans. He had been among those chased out of Ukraine and into Tsaritsyn when Stalin, whom he had known since 1906, plucked him from obscurity. Voroshilov would live almost his entire life as a military man, and in fact would be made a marshal, the highest rank, but that was entirely due to his relationship with Stalin. His actual battlefield capabilities were, uh, Badly lacking, and even at this early stage, he was mostly just following Stalin's dictates. And Stalin was much more focused with rooting out counter-revolutionaries in Tsaritsyn than he was in defending the city. Utilizing the local Cheka branch, he started an ominously familiar campaign of mass arrests, show trials, and summary executions, claiming that there was a white plot to bring down the Bolshevik authorities. So basically, classic Stalin stuff was already in play in August 1918. A state of paranoia gripped Tsaritsyn, as the inhabitants became convinced there were Cheka informants everywhere. Stalin would claim to go to these lengths in order to fire up both the soldiers and the people against the whites, but in practice, it did little to help the situation. Tsaritsyn was nearly surrounded by Krasnov, and on September 17th, Lenin stepped in and appointed General Pavel Sitin in charge of a newly created command that was a level higher than the North Caucasus, which was just called the Southern Front. This created a high-level slap fight as Stalin simply ignored Sitin being placed in charge and ignored the general's orders. Stalin said that he was the real revolutionary and shouldn't have to listen to yet another ex-Tsarist officer. Trotsky countered that they had a war to win, and if they didn't, being a revolutionary didn't mean squat. Both men went crying to Lenin to have the other recalled. On October 8th, Lenin met with Stalin in Moscow and gently informed his lieutenant that his work in Tsaritsyn was at an end but that he wouldn't suffer a loss of status and would simply be employed as the fix-it guy elsewhere. Trotsky won that political battle just in time. The Cossacks were almost in the city by then, and Voroshilov proved incapable of commanding the now 50,000 troops at his disposal against a Cossack force a third of his size. 
The city was only relieved when a division of 15,000 red troops in the North Caucasus Mountains broke away from fighting Dunican and marched 500 miles on foot in 16 days, covering over 30 miles a day. The division came up from behind the Cossacks on October 25th and scattered them, driving Krasnov's forces back to their bases on the Don River. The Cossacks weren't done with Tsaritsyn just yet, but for now, the Bolshevik hub in the south was secured. And that signaled the end of most major fighting in 1918. As the autumn turned to winter, the battles slowed. And with the fall of the Central Powers in October-November of 1918, the territories lost to the west suddenly came back into play. Before I move on past 1918 entirely, though, I still do need to cover just what exactly was going on with the Civil War in Asia. I touched on it a bit during the Siberian Intervention episodes, but then I was just covering the details concerning the Japanese. Next week, I intend to break down what the Eastern Whites were up to during the chaos of the early Civil War and round out the events of the first year. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.